You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. Simply search Faith Roots on YouTube and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Hello, I'm Willie George. I want to welcome you to this edition of the Faith Roots Podcast. And we're talking about leadership in this series. And one of the most important lessons on leadership involves confidence. Now, last week we talked about how important it is for every leader to be a self-starter. This week we're going to be talking about how important confidence is when it comes to following God and leading other people. And sin is a destroyer of confidence. When you fall into sin, you may be brash, you may be arrogant, you may know people who are very brash and arrogant, but when it comes down to real spiritual confidence, they don't have it. And confidence is the result of righteousness and knowing where you stand with God. Now, because there were no threats from the people around them for a good long while, 40 years to be exact, uh, the children of Israel had grown slack. Uh, they didn't have to stand firm. Uh, and they let their relationship with God slip. So this is the book of uh, Judges chapter 5, verse 31. So the, last, uh, so the land had rest for 40 years. And that's a pretty good season of peace, especially in that neighborhood. And uh, the next verse in chapter 6, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that was so often the pattern that when things were good, they drifted away. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So they had this seven years of oppression. Keep that number seven in mind as it pertains to this story. We'll talk about it more in a minute. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for these seven years, and uh, they, they were powerless to stop them. What Midian did was awful. Uh, they came at the just the time of harvest every year when all the crops were coming in, and they took everything that Israel had. They took away their grain. They took away their, the produce of their trees. They took away all of their fruit. Everything that came in, they stayed there long enough to collect it all, and they left the Israelites in great distress uh, economically and physically because of this oppression. Uh, so Israel's confidence had sagged, and and one of the things you need to know about confidence is when the the group of one when one group of people loses its confidence, their enemies rise in confidence, and that's what happened. The Israelites lost confidence, and the Midianites uh, gained great confidence. You know, I do a lot of talking to football teams, especially our Lincoln Bulldogs, and. Uh, one of the things I talk to them about is how important it is to keep your confidence because when you let go of your confidence, it doesn't matter whether you intend to do it or not, you automatically give confidence to the other team. And I have seen teams who had great physical ability, had enough physical ability to win and didn't because they lost their confidence. And you could see it. You could see it in body language that they didn't have the confidence they needed to be winners. Uh, before the Lord could fix Israel's problem, he had to show them exactly what the problem was. And so we read here in Judges chapter 6, first step toward deliverance, it came to pass, verse 7, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel 
who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who opposed you. And by the way, uh, the Egyptians were a much stronger empire uh, than these Midianites. And he, uh, and he said, I drove them out before you, I gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. So uh, the very thing that God did was, was reversed because they turned away from him and began to worship the demonic spirits that were there in the land before they ever got there. And they worshiped all the gods of the Amorites, and of course God backed away and um, has to do that. And I'll tell you why he has to do that. It, it's in keeping with his character because God is holy. And, uh, and sometimes people say, well, I think God's too judgmental, too harsh. No, you don't want God to be less than holy. You want God to be holy. Because when God ceases to be holy, you can no longer trust Him to be pure. That's what holiness is all about. Holiness is not I'm better than you. Holiness is a certain purity. Now, I get it that there are Christians who act like they're better than you are. And that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. He was amazingly pure and perfectly holy, but yet he loved sinners. And that didn't mean that he approved of their deeds, but he still had a love for sinners. But he was holy. You want God to be holy. It's great that He's holy. That's one part of His character that we sometimes don't appreciate because you want Him to be pure. It, it's like you know a lot of young men in the world. Uh, they want to find a girlfriend who will allow them to do whatever they want to do, but yet when it comes time for them to be married, they want to marry a girl who's very pure. And uh, well, that's that's what you want. You want purity, and actually, the girl needs to be just as as uh, picky as the boy in that matter. All right, now, the first step toward deliverance is always subtraction. So that's what the prophet came to do. He came to get them to let go of whatever it was that was in the way. And you see this all through Scripture. Uh, there was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and he said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. And so he gave the young man a list of the commandments that had to do with your fellow man. And the young man said, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus knew that. And this is fascinating about the story because what Jesus did in talking to this young man is he's commending him for the part that he got right. He wants the young man to know God's noticed the part that you have right. But he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. And the young man went away grieved because he had great riches. Now, had he stayed, he would have seen that it would have been hugely beneficial for him to follow the counsel of Jesus. He would never have lacked for anything again in his life ever. He, Jesus wasn't calling him to abject poverty. Jesus was saying, put your wealth in a different place than it is now. Now, this is interesting. Jesus encountered a lot of people who had great wealth. Nicodemus is one who came to him by night. 
Jesus didn't tell him to sell everything that he had to give to the poor. Uh, Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to do that. Zacchaeus volunteered to give a lot of his wealth away, but not all of it. And so this young man was a special case, and the reason was because he was obsessed with money. Jesus knew that he was obsessed with money, and so before he could follow Jesus, he had to get rid of this problem. There had to be a subtraction before there could be an addition, and very often that's the case with us. When we come to Christ, you know, we have to make decisions. How serious am I going to be about this? So, uh, you know, when the church was about to take off and grow after the crucifixion and resurrection, Judas had to be removed. Now he removed himself, but he had to be removed. The apostles couldn't continue with a guy like Judas in their ranks who had actually sold the Lord out and betrayed the Lord. That You don't need that kind of influence in your ranks. It creates a, a tremendous lack of trust and an open door for sin. And Judas would have done something like that again. And so he was removed. He had to be subtracted before the addition could come. That's spiritual law. So God had to deal with them about these things these the worship of Baal in particular, and he's telling them you got to give this up. Now, uh, God cannot rescue his people or do anything for his people for that matter without a confident leader. It takes a confident leader to really change and turn a group of people around. And Judges chapter 6, you see how God gave this confidence to Gideon. Now look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Terrible place to thresh wheat. You want to thresh wheat out in the open where the winds can blow the chaff away. He's doing it uh, where it can't be seen. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Wow. Now that was a total contradiction of the natural circumstances, but that's actually how God does everything he does. He contradicts natural circumstances. Uh, when God spoke and said, let there be light, there was nothing but darkness. And so when God said, let there be light, he contradicted the darkness. And God does that every time he releases faith. Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now, this is how we think when we get into trouble and it doesn't look like God's moving. The first one we want to point a finger at is God. Uh, and really we need to be looking in the mirror. And uh, whenever you've got great leaks and things are not going right, really, that's a great time to say, Lord, am I missing it somewhere? And God doesn't want to lead you into self-condemnation, and God doesn't want to lead you into continual doubt. If there is an issue, the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. God will reveal it to you so you can get rid of it and move on in your life. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, when we take communion, the Bible says if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We should be judging ourselves. And that doesn't mean beat yourself up. It means that you examine yourself and you get rid of the thing that is in the way between you and walking perfectly with God. Then the Lord said to Gideon in verse 14, I love this, go in this might of yours. God said, you've already got the might. And Gideon had to be shocked by this. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now that's fascinating to me. The might that needed to be given to a leader 
was already put into Gideon by one word given from the Lord through this angel to Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. That word was not just a statement of faith, it was an impartation. Now think about this for a minute. God's words not only inform, and that, that's important, they do inform. When we go to church and we hear teachings that inform us, and, and that's good. But I'm going to tell you something, there's another deeper process that has to happen. God's Word also imparts and when you're a communicator, a teacher, that's one thing that you're looking for. What am I going to impart to these people? What will God impart to these people through the things that I teach? It's really a matter of what God imparts. And the Lord imparted something to get in. He said, go in this might of yours. In other words, the ability to turn the situation around. It was not something that was hidden in Gideon. And no doubt he had a personality that lent itself to God's use in this matter. But he also received an impartation of God's might, which made him capable of dealing with the Midianites. And uh, this is a fascinating thing. All right, now let's, uh, let's keep on going. First thing he had to do, was deal with this seven years of Baal worship. And so we look at verse 25, and it says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father ha has, cut down the wooden image that is beside it. The bull was seven years old. The, 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 the curse of the Midianites was seven years in length. So the bull represented the seven years of bondage that Israel was in. So Gideon took that bull and he killed it and he put it on the altar and the wood that he needed for the altar he got from the image of Baal, which was a wooden image in the middle of the village. And he cut that down, made the altar of the Lord, set it all on fire and burned up that bull right there in the middle of his village in the middle of the night. Of course, people got up the next morning, they were all upset and uh, they were going to kill Gideon. And his own father had been party to the Baal worship, but when it came right down to it, will I kill my son for this? He couldn't do that. And so he said, if Baal is a god, let Baal do this. And so uh, in Hebrew it would say, let Baal plead, which is Jerubbaal, and uh, that's what Gideon's nickname became. Now, God didn't want Baal to get the credit for what he was about to do for Israel. That's why Baal had to be offended in Gideon's village. That's why Baal had to be humiliated in Gideon's village. Had God stepped in and immediately begun to deliver the children of Israel, they would have given the credit to Baal. The very fact that everybody knew Baal was upset with Gideon, and, and we say, well, there is no God at all. There, yes, there's a demon. And so this demon spirit would have been upset with Gideon, but he wasn't afraid of it because he feared the Lord. And so Gideon had sufficiently offended Baal so that Baal is not going to get any credit for the deliverance that's about to come. This is the great confidence that Gideon has. Now the Holy Spirit emboldened him for this assignment now, the Bible says he sent messengers. So, well, let's look at verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's 634 in the book of Judges. And he blew the trumpet. And the Ibez writes, 
I'm not pronouncing that right. Just read it yourself and you figure it out. They gathered themselves behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also had gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Now, what I want you to see from all of this is there was a boldness on him that was brought about because of the anointing from the word of the Lord. That impartation had come from the angel's word. And now he has everything he needs to go deliver these people. Fascinating story. Confidence, confidence begins with hearing from God. And if you're going to have victory in your life, you have to have confidence and you have to get rid of everything that's in the way between you and your confidence. If it's an addiction of some kind or another, if it's a compromise that you know is in your life, you'll have to get rid of that to have full victory in your life because that will rob you of your confidence. about four things every leader needs to know. First week we talked about the importance of a leader being a self-starter. David is a great example of that. And uh, now we're talking a lot about Gideon. And Gideon was a very confident young man, but he didn't start out in confidence. His confidence came from God. If you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to have confidence because the people who follow you will need to see your confidence. That's something they look for as a sign from God that He is with you, He's leading you. Now, in Judges chapter 7, uh, it says in verse 1, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod. So the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So he's got all of these men, there, there are 32,000 of them, and it's very near to the camp of the Midianites. It wasn't a long distance away. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Uh, now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead, and 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now, what I want you to see from all this is God is leading Gideon to make adjustments. And this is not the first adjustment that he had to make. Adjustments, even though they're small in some cases, they don't seem to have great bearing on what's going on. They're always important. Those adjustments are faith builders. And so the first adjustment that Gideon had to make, he had following God, he had to kill the animal, the, the, the bull that was seven years old that represented the seven years of the Midianite oppression. So he did that. Then he tore down the altar of Baal and offered that bull on that sacrifice. So those are two separate things, but they're closely linked, but they're, they're two adjustments. So he could have offered the bull separately in another place, but he didn't. He did it where God specifically told him to do it. So he did two things there. He offered the bull. Then he uh, tore down the image of Baal, and he offered the bull there as the sacrifice. Then the third thing that he did is he sent home all of these men 
who were fearful. And uh, he, uh, well, he gathered the 32,000 people. That was another judgment. He blew the trumpet and gathered them in. And then he says, if you're fearful, go home. 22,000 people left. Now, <clears throat> that had to be uh, discouraging in, in one sense, but yet if you know anything about a struggle or a battle and you're walking with God, you know you don't need fearful people around you. You don't want to be surrounded by fearful people. I noticed something years ago uh, that, that, that I had a, a counselor, someone who was close to me, that, uh, that they were always spreading fear. Every time I got around them, uh, fear would come out of the mouth. And I, I began to see this is a habit. And, and ultimately, I had to quit receiving counsel from that person uh, because uh, virtually every time we came to a crosswords, his voice was a voice of fear. And uh, you can't have a voice of fear speaking into your heart. Every time we'd start to launch a major building thing, there was a voice of fear. We'd do this, he, there'd be a voice of fear. And I realized this is something that is habitual, and I'm going to have to adjust this. So you can't, you cannot uh, have people of fear speaking into you. So Gideon uh, sent home these 22,000 fearful men, and now he's down to 10,000 men, but God still wants him to make another judgment. So uh, he tells them to take these guys down to the water and watch them drink. And so uh, there were 10,000 of them who went to the brook, and they went to get a drink, and 9,700 of them got down on all fours, hands in the water, and put their faces to the surface of the water and sucked up the water directly from the surface of the brook. Uh, only 300 men did this. They cupped their hands and did this when they got drinks. And uh, I often wondered, what does that tell us? And I really begin to study this, meditate it, and here's what it is. They are in a battle zone. They're, they're in a theater of war. The Midianites are just that way a few miles. And so they're very, very close, and they are not going to give up their vigilance in this situation. And so while they are getting drinks, they're still behaving responsibly, not fearfully, but responsibly. They're not drinking in fear. They had a chance to leave. They were told openly, if you're fearful, go. Now, these next 9,700 men who leave were probably not fearful. They just were not the ones that God wanted to deliver by. God wanted men who were not only unafraid, but men who were also responsible. And so when, when you put your face down in the water and you drink without looking and you give up your situational awareness, you are showing that you're not the responsible guy at, like the one next to you. So these 9,700 men had to be sent away. And now Gideon is down to 300. Now, all of these adjustments were done in stages. Had God started with the 300, had Gideon sent out a call and only 300 men showed up, that would have been very discouraging. He had to be encouraged by the appearance of 32,000 men. And uh, even though God was not going to use them, he was still saying, hmm, this is pretty good. I've got some support here. But now he keeps going, and he winds up with these 3,200, and he realizes, I've got guys that are just like me. They have a willingness to follow God. They're fearless. And, and so God is doing something here. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 7. <clears throat> 
And here's what Paul said in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 2. But we speak the wisdom of God, even in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, here's what Paul says. Paul says that all of God's plans are done in his wisdom. God never acts outside of wisdom. Sometimes his wisdom may appear to be foolish to the world, but it's never really foolish. It is brilliant. Now, all of these maneuvers, the calling of the 32,000, the sending home 22,000, the the sending home 9,700, all of those would have been noticed by the Midianites. And so uh, for all intents and purposes, Gideon sent out a call, 32,000 men showed up, and he sends almost 32,000 home. The Midianites know this. And so they begin to think, what in the world is going on here? Uh, Didn't this guy call for an army? And they would have had no way of knowing exactly how many men that he had. They wouldn't have known there were 32,000. They just know that he sent home a huge number of men, a noticeable number of men, and he did it twice. And so they are now beginning to feel the confidence that's in Gideon. Now, I told you in another episode how that when one football team has great confidence, it automatically, it's like a seesaw, it takes the confidence away from the other. And so confidence can't be in both places at once. It has to be in one place or the other. And now the confidence is leaving Midian because of Gideon's behavior. And the fact that he's got just 300 men makes him even more mysterious because they can't tell where these guys are. They're wondering, does he have a couple of hundred thousand people out here with him? Are there more reinforcements? Is he receiving so many numbers of people that we have no idea who we're about to fight? Those thoughts were in their minds. And so God was working here in an unorthodox way, but in a brilliant way nonetheless. Now, God led Gideon to do something similar to what Abraham did. Abraham had to fight against an invading army that had come from the east. And there were four different kings and all of their troops who had captured the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And among them was Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham went to go rescue Lot. Abraham divided his forces up and attacked this army at night. Now, he personally led 318 men. He did have help from some of his neighbors. And so they divided their forces into three companies, and they hit these invaders in the nighttime. And the invaders didn't have a clue how many men they were facing. Same thing's about to hit the Midianites. This is absolute brilliance. You're playing upon their fears. This is uh, modern-day warfare. It's psychological warfare, and God was using it against the Midianites. Now, they were so on edge that when Gideon hit them, uh, they didn't have to run but just a few feet, and they were among strangers, even though they're Midianites. Now, this is important. 
What was the strength of the Midianite army was also its weakness. Now, there were 135,000 Midianites. Had this battle been fought in the daytime, the Midianites would have been able to easily tell uh, that they were against a very small force. But in the middle of the night, they couldn't determine the size of the force that was against them. And secondly, they didn't have to move but maybe 50, 60 yards, and they are in the presence of strangers. These may be your own countrymen, but you don't even recognize them because it's pitch black, and uh, you can't tell. You, you may know three, four, five hundred of your fellow countrymen, but you don't know all of them. And so all it takes is somebody panicking, and there has to be among 135,000 some young man who's inexperienced, who freaks out, pulls out his knife, and stabs his fellow, and the next thing you know... The Midianites think that they are being invaded uh, and the, the, by the Israelites and that Israel is right in the middle of their camp, which that's not true, but that's what they think. And so they suddenly begin to turn on others. They are, they're erring on the side of caution. They're killing any guy they don't recognize. God is working. He's permitting this to happen. And this is one of the things that he does frequently in the Old Testament and will do it again. Uh, Ezekiel 38, 39, which is a future event, describes this very thing when an invading army comes against Israel and they destroy themselves. They fight each other. So this is what God had in mind for the Midianites. And so Gideon's plan was absolutely brilliant. Now, people will often say, well, I did something stupid, but the Lord told me to do it. Settle this in your heart. The voice of wisdom and the voice of the Holy Spirit are one and the same. God never leads anybody to do anything stupid. He may lead us to do something unorthodox, but it isn't stupid. When you examine it thoroughly, you'll see this is absolute brilliance. And God plays on his wisdom and brilliance. It may not be something that men do, but you see, God knows what is in the hearts of men. And God can work even in a time when the odds are totally against us, but God knows how to work, and he uses psychological warfare against our enemies. That's what you see here with Gideon. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. All of Gideon's confidence came from that word. That one word of impartation gave him the confidence to fight this amazing battle. And so if you're going to be a leader, you've got to have confidence and you've got to hear from God. And your confidence is what causes other people to want to follow you. going to be a leader, you have to know how to lead with confidence. And that's the great lesson that we see in the story of Gideon. Uh, Gideon was very confident, but he wasn't overly confident. And see, uh, a lot of people think that if you're confident, you're cocky. And <clears throat> apparently some people do manifest a certain measure of cockiness. And I know that I've been accused of that myself, uh, but it really is, is an outflow of our confidence. But you have to be careful that you're not overly confident. And let me show you how I know Gideon was not overly confident when he attacked the Midianites. This is Judges 7, 16. 
Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. Now, the brilliance of this plan was this. Gideon didn't do anything to put his men in danger. There's going to be a stampede. When they blow these trumpets and they knock the clay pots off the torches and the flames erupt and and these Midianites look up and see themselves surrounded on three sides, it's important that they not run through any of Gideon's men. If they run through any of his men, they're going to realize very quickly uh, there's a very small number of people here. And so Gideon is maintaining the mystery by not having his men fully surround the Midianites. And he knows that they will flee into the open square. In other words, this, this square has only three sides, and so they're going to flee through the opening, and that's what makes them vulnerable. I was in Israel in 1988, and uh, our host invited a general from the Israeli Defense Forces out to talk to our group, and he was talking about the Bible and about how it influenced Israeli uh, military doctrine. And he told us that they still uh, adhere to what Gideon did. They try not to surround an army on all three sides. They want to leave them some opportunity of escape so when they run, uh, they can destroy them on the run. And that's what makes an army vulnerable. It's like a grizzly bear comes at you. The worst thing you can do is turn around and run. Uh, when you turn your back, that's when you're the most vulnerable. So uh, Gideon didn't put any of his own men in a position to be trampled. He knew that the means uh, by which the victory would come was by the wisdom of God, not by the true strength and brute strength of superior numbers. And so he could see how God was going to deliver. And that's how God always works. Now, if God did want to do things with brute strength, he certainly could, But because brute strength was certainly uh, he was capable of. But he chose not to do it. And, and most of his victories in Scripture... Uh, he he gives the victory by wisdom and not by brute strength. Uh, that's why the scripture says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The whole idea behind that verse is that God is going to do things with great wisdom. You know, when he wanted to redeem the world, he could have sent 12 legions of angels, which not only would have knocked out all of the Roman soldiers and all of the enemies that Jesus had among the Jewish people, uh, he could have destroyed all the demons with 12 legions of angels. He didn't need all of his angels to beat Satan and everything that worked on his behalf. So what I want you to see is that God chose not to defeat the powers of darkness with brute strength. Instead, he used wisdom. Satan played into the hand of God by crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. The innocent man was killed. Therefore, it gave God legal grounds to let any man who wants to identify with Christ, identify with him and be saved because in dying as an innocent man, he paid for the sin of the world. And it was a brilliant plan. It was the wisdom of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, have the princes of this world known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So many times when we're in battles, we were looking for brute strength. God, where's your strength? We want to see great strength. And we need to open our minds to the idea 
that there's a very real possibility that God's wisdom is going to be what we operate in and what happens. All right, uh, in World War II, great story. Uh, in Britain, uh, General Patton had been uh, called on the carpet for some things he had done in battle in uh, Italy and uh, North Africa, and he was a very brash and but very bold general. The Nazis admired him greatly. And so the Allies did something very brilliant. They took Patton and they put him in charge of a mythical army that was very close to the narrowest point of the crossing of the, the uh, channel, the English Channel, only about 30 miles uh, between uh, England and uh, Calais. And, and so that's where the Nazis thought that the invasion of Europe would come from. So they created all these rubber army tanks and, and wooden airplanes, and they had Patton give speeches all around the area. They created all kinds of radio traffic uh, for this mythical army, and the, the Nazis kept their forces concentrated at Calais. They, they, they were certain that's where the Allies would invade when, in fact, uh, the invasion came later at Normandy. And it was three times the distance across the Channel uh, than it was at Calais, but it was an element of surprise. And so God does things like that, completely catches the enemy off guard. Now, the Midianites in this battle couldn't take confidence in their superior numbers because of the darkness. They outnumbered the Israelites 450 to 1, but they didn't know that. And so it meant nothing because they didn't know that. The darkness took away their advantage, and uh, so they fell into fear. Gideon had all of these amazing signs, five of them. I'll tell you what they are in just a minute. But God had given him all of these confirmations. When you are following God, especially in a difficult time, look for a string of confirmations. God won't just confirm something once. He'll confirm it over and over and over again. And confidence will grow when you pause to look for uh, the confirming signs of the Lord. Now, I'm not talking so much about natural signs, although Gideon had that. I want you to see the last of these signs that God gave to him, and uh, we're, we're going to show you how it worked. In the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 12, Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp." And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Before he ever went against the Midianites, Gideon heard out of their own mouths they expected to lose to him. God had already started working. And listen, I, I heard a friend say this years ago, and you may hear me repeat it a lot on this podcast over the months. 
God's always doing more than you think he is. And Gideon probably never realized that God was already at work, but the fear was already present in the Midianite army. And a lot of it had to do with how Gideon was doing the things God told him to do. Send home the men that are fearful, 22,000 left. That was noticed by the Midianites. They wondered, how many people does he have left? Another 10,000 leave. And, and so every move that God is leading him to make is helping to build this questioning and fearfulness in the minds of the Midianites. God's at work here getting ready to do something amazing. Now, he had five confirming signs. And so let's go back and look at what they are. First of all, when the angel first appeared to him, he asked the angel, don't leave till I bring you a sacrifice. Gideon brought the sacrifice back, and the angel with fire consumed that sacrifice, burned it up and obliterated it. The second thing that happened was the destruction of Baal's altar. God kept Gideon from being killed there. Uh, then he put two fleeces before the Lord. He asked God to show him that he was with him. And he said, let there be dew on the fleece and the ground around it dry. That happened. It was exactly the opposite the next day. Dry fleece, wet ground. And then the dream of the Midianite was the fifth confirmation. So there were five confirmations that he was on the right track. Now, we don't ask for natural signs in the New Testament. We have the Spirit within. But there's nothing wrong with asking God for a confirmation of the Spirit. And he does that. Uh, in fact, it's his pattern. The scripture says in, uh, in every word uh, that God does, he confirms it by two or three witnesses. And so that's something that you should expect to see. In every word, shall uh, there are two or three witnesses to confirm what it is that God would have us do. And so don't be afraid to be so confident and looking for these witnesses. God will confirm that. He'll give those to you. He'll be merciful to you, and you'll know you're on the right track. That's what happened to Gideon. Now, don't be threatened by a lack of confidence in potential followers. Um, what I want you to see is when you start something, there's a very real possibility that uh, there'll be people who doubt what you're doing. When I started Church on the Move, I had that happen to me. There were a lot of people who doubted, actually spoke to me, their doubts about me starting a church. Why? Because I was a kid's minister. And so I, I knew that God had spoken to me. I had been very careful to seek Him. I had three to four confirmations over a six-month period that I was doing the right thing. But now the time has come for me to start the church, and I know that I have this image it's both positive and negative. It's a split image. And uh, there are people who admired me, who respected me because of all the work I'd done with kids, but yet the, these same people didn't think that I could teach them. So God gave me a plan. God always gives wisdom to confirm that you're on the right track. God put it in my heart, go on the radio. And so I got on uh, several radio stations and began to teach daily the scriptures. And when I started doing that, people could hear me on the radio and they're saying, you know what, this guy has something to say. And we had loads of people come to our church because they had heard me on the radio. And uh, that's how we started with a lot of momentum in the early days is these people heard the radio message and they said, this guy can teach. And, and so God gave me a strategy. God always gives a strategy before he gives a victory. He confirms and he gives strategies. So this is what we see with Gideon. 
talking about confidence and how important it is if you're a leader to maintain confidence. People follow when you're confident. When you're not confident, people sense that. They may not even know how to articulate it, but they can recognize that you do not have the confidence to do what it is that you're doing, and many of them will drift away. Uh, one of the things I've found that we have to follow when we're doing something for the Lord, following His plan, and especially when we're gaining ground, is you need to stick with what you know. And what I mean by that is, uh, is don't get outside your lane. Don't drift over into some area that you're unfamiliar with. When God calls you, He calls you because of a particular skill set that you have or the way that you are wired. He uses that in order to bless you. He doesn't use everybody exactly the same way. When you read the hero stories of the Bible, God didn't deliver everybody in the same way. He utilized what was in the personality of the people who would be his leaders. So stick with what you know. God calls us because of our gifts. Uh, years ago, I, I, I had a great admiration for a particular uh, TV ministry. There was a guy, a pastor, wonderful man of God. I'd had a lot of contact with him over the years. And uh, he had an amazing testimony, uh, had an amazing ability to communicate very simply uh, the wonderful things of God. I, I loved what he did, and I wanted to have a TV show just like that. And I had a number of people coming to me saying, Willie, you need to be on TV, you need to be on TV. But, you know, the Lord never really told me to go on TV. So I went on TV. I was on in about eight different cities and uh, I noticed something, that we never had a breakthrough. I remember one staff meeting in particular, I asked the lady who was in charge of the responses, how many people responded to our TV program this week? And she said, none. I said, what? None. I said, that's supernatural. That, that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not great, but I'm not that bad. God is obviously not blessing this. Now, at the same time, another thing that happened in our church was I was getting involved in our youth ministry, and we started this thing called 180, and it exploded. And as it exploded, I realized I don't have the money to do the TV and 180 at the same time. And this is what I asked myself. If I go off Christian television... Will there be others to carry on? And the answer is yes, about six or seven channels worth of guys. All right, if I don't reach our teenagers, will someone else step in and do that? Well, the answer is no. Well, that made my decision. I went after the young people, and I learned something through that, that no matter how gifted you may be in one area doesn't mean that you can do anything that you want to do. So maintaining confidence has to do with you following your skill set. God uses your skill set. I tried to be a certain type of communicator. It was outside my skill set. I watched another guy. I thought, man, this guy is great at how he delivers the truth. I tried to be him. But I don't think like him. Uh, I don't process things the way that he does. I can't communicate the way that he does. 
And so I, I had to realize after several months of trying to be like him, I thought maybe I needed to become a little bit more relevant and so forth. And so I changed some of my communication style. didn't compromise a thing in terms of what I believe or what I was communicating, but I just tr changed a little bit of my methodology. It didn't work. And so I realized I'm going back to my style. I'm going to do what I do. If people like it, great. If they don't like it, that's all right, too. Uh, God didn't call me to be a, a, a pastor to everybody. He called me to a particular group. And so that's what I'm going to do. But my greatest lack of confidence came when I got outside my skill set. Now, don't be afraid to do what it is you're strong in. That's obviously where God called you. Let me tell you some of my favorite things to teach. Children's ministry, I taught on it a lot. And I know a lot about kids' ministry. And I, I would be confident to teach what I know about children's ministry in front of the greatest preachers who ever lived. And I know that they don't know what I know when it comes to kids' ministry. Now, in other areas, I wouldn't dare to try to communicate or preach because it, they're really good at those subjects. But in my element, in teaching on kids way back there, I had as much confidence as anybody because I knew my subject really well. Raising children, that's another thing I'm very confident in. And my, my evidence is my own kids. God has given me four great kids. They've turned out wonderfully. And I'm greatly confident in teaching on how to raise children. Uh, handling money. That's another thing I've had to learn to do. Now, I may not teach it exactly like someone else teaches it, but I'll tell you where I'm good. I'm good at teaching people how to make money. Uh, not many people talk about that. And uh, But if you're a believer, you have to make money. And so God showed me how to make money so I could pay for my kid's TV show. Had I not known how to make money, I could never have done Gospel Bill because 94% of my income in those days came from the sales of a product and not from offerings. And so I had to know how to make money to do the thing God called me to do. I know about Christian school. I've started three to four Christian schools. I've been a part of helping those. Let's see, one, two, three, four. Four different Christian schools. And uh, we have an excellent Christian school. And uh, I, I'm very confident in talking about that. Following the Holy Spirit. I'm very confident when it comes to knowing the voice of the Holy Spirit. So stick with things that you have confidence in. There will be certain things that you will not hear me teach about. Uh, I have a great marriage. I don't teach a lot on marriage. It's not one of my strong suits, I, even though I have a wonderful marriage. And, and my wife and I have been married almost 50 years now, and we get along great. We, we've had a very fruitful relationship, but uh, teaching on marriage is not one of my strong suits. So that's not something I try to get into. So you see, we each have areas where we have a particular strength. Learn to flow in that strength, and you'll be amazed how much more confidence you have. Now, another thing I've had to learn to do is involve others. Uh, when you're a really confident person, you're not insecure toward other people. You realize God can use other people, and you see this in the story of Gideon. So let me read it to you. This is Judges chapter 7, verse 24. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and Jordan, and they 
they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So uh, Gideon in the beginning didn't call anybody from Ephraim to help him. Uh, He only sent word out to four of the tribes of Israel, Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali. Didn't even ask the people of Ephraim to help him. So they were upset with him after they were used of God to help head off these Midianites as they were fleeing. So let's go to chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him, reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Uh, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Brilliant here, brilliant. These people were being very unreasonable. They were saying, we would have been there with you from the outset. They probably wouldn't have. But once the momentum had switched, now they're full of confidence. And so they're upset with Gideon for not calling them to battle sooner. He handled it brilliantly by magnifying the contribution that he that they made. Now, a, a great leader, a confident leader, is not afraid to celebrate other people. I know some people, a lot of leaders, that seem to be very, very confident, but one thing I'll note about them, they, they never give credit to the team members. They never celebrate other people around them. They do not share the spotlight with anybody. Uh, and and I, I think that's been one of my strengths down through the years. I've never been afraid to share the spotlight with someone else on my team. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was able to transition to my son so smoothly because I've never uh, had a difficult time sharing the spotlight. So uh, uh, insecurity will cause you to uh, shy away from recognizing and utilizing other people who can really help you, and that's what Gideon uh, could do. A confident leader can celebrate the contributions of others. A confident leader celebrates the contributions of others. This is one of the things I've seen down through the years. You know, when we start off and we grow, we inevitably draw young leaders to us, and sometimes they stay in our churches, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they go out and they partner uh, or they pastor in other places. And one of the things that I've seen that a lot of, of great pastors do is they won't let these guys grow up. And um, they, they continue to keep those guys in the state of, of spiritual immaturity that they were in when they first launched their churches and ministries. Uh, one pastor who pastors thousands of people uh, told me, he said, my founding pastor who sent me out told me not so long ago, he said, I'll always think of you as that 25-year-old man who came to start this church. And, and, and that's sad, that really is, because he's grown into such a great leader. He's so much more mature than he was years ago when he first started out, but his founding pastor refuses to recognize the changes that have happened in him. And that happens a lot. And when you do that, you hurt yourself. It will cost you relationships with those people because they want to know that they too have been used by God. You've got to recognize gifts in other people. That's one of the things 
things I do think I'm good at. I recognize all the young men who come out from our church. Listen, we've got men who have come out of church on the move down through the years who are pastoring and doing a knockout job. And I'm not talking about the guys who have remained on our staff. I'm talking about guys who have gone out to other cities, and, and, and some of them are actually bigger than we are today. And we celebrate them. I recognize them. I am thrilled at what they've done. And uh, that's why I have a relationship with them. I'm confident that when you become insecure, you lose relationships. It doesn't matter uh, uh, who it is. You will lose relationships. And, and so that's why it's important that you not allow insecurity to rob you of your confidence. Confident people can share the spotlight with others. And that's one of the lessons that we see here with Gideon. Hebrews 10.35, I'm reading from 26 translations, it says this, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, for it holds a rich reward for you. Confidence is the key to receiving answers to prayer, just as an individual, but it also plays heavily into the success of a leader. It's the key to victory for all the people of God. Now, all of the great victories in Scripture came to people who were supremely confident in God. In other words, uh, timid people didn't win great victories. God may have started with timid people, but He finished them off in confidence. Uh, listen to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Again, we've, we've covered this so much for various different reasons the last year. But David said to King Saul, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. And so David is talking about what he's going to do. Now in verse 37 he talks about what the Lord's going to do, because he understood that in any working of God there are two parts that have to be played. There is our part and there is God's part. And David said in verse 37, Moreover, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, he oozed confidence before he went out to fight Goliath, and so much so that it convinced King Saul to let him go before King Saul was going to try to talk him out of it. But everything changed once David got before the king. What was it? What was the factor that changed Saul's attitude? It was the confidence of David. Now, Saul still wasn't in great faith, but he was different than he had been before because of the confidence of David. Here's another place where you see great confidence. Here's Moses talking to the children of Israel as they are all in total fear. They're, 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 they're screaming, help us, God, because they could hear the noise of the Egyptian chariot wheels. They were very familiar with those chariots. They had seen them many times as slaves in Egypt. 
They knew what befell them uh, unless some kind of miracle happened. And listen to what Moses said, verse 13, Exodus 14. He said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Now that, those are confident words. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And that's exactly what happened. They, they saw uh, a, a tremendous miracle and they were really quiet after Moses stilled them. And this is important. Uh, Moses' words stopped a panic of hundreds of thousands of people. He was able to still the fear that had come at them. And it had to be there greatly, but it was completely stopped because of the confidence of this one man. I'm telling you that confidence in a leader is key to where the congregation goes, to where people follow. Uh, if you do not have confidence, the people cannot follow. And it, it's not a numbers game. It's not like I've got to get uh, more people on my side than are on their side. That, that isn't the way it works. Confidence in the leader has everything to do with where the followers go. So confidence is hugely important. Here's another story. This is the book of John, the 11th chapter. This is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So I'm going to pick up and read at uh, verse 20. Then Martha, she's the oldest sister of Lazarus, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was still in the house. That's the middle child, the second sister, and Lazarus is the younger one. Now, the Scripture doesn't say that exactly. We do know that Martha was the oldest, but, but it doesn't say that Lazarus was the baby of the family. But I can tell you just what I know about human behavior, the way the two girls related to their brother, uh, he was the baby of the family. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, and very confidently, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Martha, that resurrection is going to happen because of me and I'm here now. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so you see Jesus operating in supreme confidence. Confidence is like a cowboy's rope. And I used to do an illustrated sermon where I would teach kids how to receive an answer to prayer by roping a box on the stage. That's my answer to prayer. And it, it allows me, the rope does, to reach something that I can't reach with my hands. And that's what a cowboy does with his rope. He uses that lariat rope to reach out and grab a calf or a steer uh, or perhaps another horse. And uh, he, he ropes what he can't touch. And that's the reason he has the rope. The rope allows you to reach into another dimension. Uh, when that calf is running away from you and you're on the horse, he might as well be in another dimension. He is beyond your reach. He's not in your grasp. The rope enables you to catch him. 
these uh, vaqueros in California, Southern California, uh, back before the Anglos came into California. They were so amazing with their lariat ropes, and uh, they were able to rope grizzly bears. And uh, four of the vaqueros would catch a grizzly bear, each one of them roping a leg, which was just incredible. And they could take the grizzly bear and tie him to a post uh, because they knew how to spread him out with those uh, ropes. They were amazing in their ability to rope. And that's where the uh, roping cowboy came from, was the vaqueros in Southern California were the ones who were amazing in their ability to rope. The rope is like confidence. It enables you to connect with things that you cannot touch with your hands. And so it permits us to lay hold on unseen things. So you see people in the scriptures who are supremely confident about something that is unseen. Jesus was supremely confident that Lazarus would rise from the dead, but it was an unseen thing. hadn't happened yet, but he was still confident of it. Moses was confident that the children of Israel would cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Uh, hadn't seen it yet, but he was confident of it. So David was confident that Goliath would fall, even though it hadn't happened yet. Goliath was still booming out there and yelling, and David was confident that he was going down. So, can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus had said to Martha, I hope I can raise Lazarus. Or if David had said to Saul, I, I, I sure hope I can kill this giant. Or if Moses had said to the children of Israel, gosh, guys, I, I, I don't like this, but I, I sure hope God does something today. Can you imagine how it would have changed those who heard them speak? Now, confidence is hugely important for a leader because it assuages the fears that are in your followers. And that's why God anoints leaders and gives them more than a dose of individual confidence. There is such a thing as individual confidence. But when you're a leader, you have to have a confidence for your followers as well. And that's what God wants to give. God wants to give leaders this amazing confidence. Now, confidence is obtained well before the apex moment in your story. I'm still here in John chapter 11, and Jesus had told uh, Mary, Martha, and the others, roll away the stone where Lazarus was in the grave. Then they took away the stone, verse 41, from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have, past tense, heard me. Jesus came to that place in supreme confidence. So this confidence that he had was not generated once he got there. He had it before he ever got to that place. Now, earlier in this chapter, you read how Jesus knew before he ever got to the home of Mary and Martha that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, John eleven eleven. These things he said after he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And he was talking about death. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then he said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So he already knew that Lazarus was dead. He waited on purpose to get to the home of Lazarus 
when Lazarus had been dead for four days because of the decomposition in his body. Now, all the people that had been raised from the dead in Scripture had been freshly dead. They hadn't been dead that long. But now Lazarus is different. He's dead and already in the ground. And his own sister said, by this time he stinks. His body had already begun to decompose. Jesus wanted it to be in that moment because he wanted to thoroughly and totally humiliate death. The decomposition had started. Jairus' daughter, she was dead for just maybe an hour or two when Jesus got to the home. Uh, She hadn't yet begun to decompose. Lazarus was decomposing. And so Jesus was there to raise someone from the grip of death that seemed hopeless, the kind of resurrection that would happen to all who were in the graves. That's the, the purpose of why he was there. He had this confidence. Confidence is so incredibly contagious that they were willing to roll away the stone. They knew Lazarus was stinking, but they rolled away the stone anyway. Uh, Saul released David to fight when he said this uncircumcised Philistine will be as one of them. Saul completely changed and allowed David to go out to battle. The people of Israel went down into the bottom of the Red Sea in the darkness and they were quiet about it solely because of the word that Moses spoke to them. It was confidence that turned them around. Confidence is contagious. So all who have confidence are convinced, thoroughly convinced, of the purposes of God. What is the purpose of God? The purpose of God is always redemption. So when Jesus came to this place, he knew God's purpose here was to redeem the death of Lazarus, to flip it. And he knew that before he ever got there. He knew that this was going to happen. And he had known for quite some time that Lazarus was going to be raised. Uh, I don't have time to get into that, but it had to do with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that Lazarus would be the one uh, that would be raised. Then he says, or, or Paul says here in Ephesians 4, 30, uh, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, for it was through the Spirit of God that sealed you as His against the day of redemption. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to redemption. So when the Spirit's leading us, He's always leading us to things that are redemptive. That's the purpose of God. So you ask yourself, what's redemption in this story? Christ knew His purpose, 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. So when you understand the purpose of God and you, you, you know this, then you know that God's purpose in everything is redemption. And uh, that's why Peter, when he went to the house where Dorcas lay dead, he knelt to pray. He was praying to determine the purpose of God. I can't help but believe that Peter wasn't quite sure when he got there whether or not he was going to raise Dorcas, but he was only then presented with what was going on. And as he prayed, he sensed, okay, it's time to raise her. The purpose was made very clear, and he raised her from the dead. So purpose is incredibly important. And when you understand God's purpose, God leads you into a building program. He didn't do this to destroy you. God didn't lead you and bless you all the way through these things to dump you at the end. That's why it's so important that you follow God every step of the way, that you don't get out ahead of Him, that you're confident of your steps because of the leading of the Lord. Then you can have great confidence, and it's so contagious that others are willing to follow you. 
Every leader has to be a self-starter, and every leader needs to have confidence. That's all of my time on this particular aspect of four things every leader should know, but we'll get into the third one next week. I'll see you then. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Thank you for listening.